Today is obviously a, a dedication Sunday, and that's a really special thing. And uh, as Pete's already said, we are so thrilled to have so many friends and family uh, here visiting from out of town come to join us in our Sunday service. It's really, it's really special to, for us as a church to have you join with us uh, for the whole service. Uh, one more thing that's, that's kind of uh, not, not really that special, but a little bit special about this Sunday is um, it's something we call an RBT Sunday. Uh, and for those of you that aren't normally here, what that means is that every month or two, we use a Sunday sermon to, to do a whole overview of a whole book of the Bible. Now, just to reassure you, not any longer in duration, not a longer sermon, but we just kind of fly up higher, get a greater altitude to get a bird's eye view of a whole book uh, in half an hour. And then what we do as a church is we go away and over the next few weeks we read this particular book of the Bible uh, and then we'll come together in small groups and discuss it. Uh, so this morning we're going to do a brisk walk through Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you do have a Bible, uh, please open up to Colossians. Don't worry if you haven't got one, but if you've got one, have it open. And hopefully you found scattered around us some, some sheets, a handout as well, and that will just help you, especially in this kind of as we, as, we, as we run through a whole book, help you find your bearings and keep up with where we're at. But I'm also wanting this morning to draw out some particular connections to parenting and grandparenting along the way, and actually, as Pete's already started to do, to more broadly call us all to serve the children in our church family, whether we have our own children or not, but the children we've been blessed with in our church family. So, uh, Nothing too ambitious for a Sunday to, to squeeze all of that in, but we'll see how we go. Now, you are probably aware that we live in a world right now that is just chock full of counsel and advice and expert recommendations. So if you take parenting for an example, although this would apply to lots of other things as well, it used to be that you'd just have access to a few different sources of practical advice as a parent. So perhaps you'd ask your own parents or your friends who had children already for guidance on how to raise children. You might have taken a book or two out of the library, or you might, if you're really keen, have gone and found a class and taken a class somewhere. Now, if you type parenting tips into Google, you literally get 13 million results. It's a little overwhelming. And it's the same for every other area of his life as well. Whatever you go searching for, whatever you want help with, you'll be hit by millions and millions of results and advice. And amidst all that information, there are so many claims of life-changing knowledge and wisdom. So many claims of secrets that you cannot possibly live without because they'll transform your life so much for the better. But what are we to make of all those claims as Christians? Should we listen to them? Do we need them? Will we fail in our lives if we don't keep abreast of all of them? Are they all compatible with following Jesus? And what dangers lie in becoming too distracted by them? The Colossians, to whom this letter is written, may not have had the internet or YouTube or Twitter, but they too face the, the same kind of competing claims all around them in their first century culture. Promises everywhere of newly discovered knowledge and power. Claims that their lives as Christians would be significantly better if they just branched out and diversified and embraced other sources of wisdom. 
Now, by no means am I completely wanting this morning to rubbish the great wealth of resources that are available to us to help us learn and develop new skills in our life. I appreciate a good YouTube tutorial as much as anyone. But the message of Paul's letter to the Colossians is that only one thing is truly necessary to live a rich and full Christian life. Only one thing is truly needed. And that one thing is Jesus. That's what's at the heart of Paul's message in this letter. And I'm going to break it down for us this morning into four main sections. And then there's some concluding greetings at the end. But four main sections, beginning with chapter 1, verses 1 to 23, where Paul's first theme is fullness in Christ. Fullness in Christ. Paul begins this letter, as he does so often in his letters, with thanksgiving. Paul was a man whose life was marked by continual thanksgiving. And not just because he was a a guy with a sunny disposition, I don't know if that was the case or not, not because he was a glass-half-full kind of guy. No, Paul was continually thankful because he was continually recognizing the, the multitude of ways that God was at work all around him. And just as we've been giving special thanks this morning for the the gift of these uh, precious children to their families, Paul also offered most thanks for the things that he considered most precious and valuable. And when he considered the Christians in, in the city of Colossae, when he heard from his friend Epaphras about them, there were three things in particular that he opens up telling us that he was particularly thankful for. Three fruits evident in their lives that he considered to be the most important and essential marks of every true believer. And they were their faith in Christ, their love for one another, and their hope laid up for them in heaven. And he tells them, we always thank God when we pray for you because of your faith, your hope, and your love. These three fruits are priceless Which means, by the way, that if we often feel like we're distinctly underwhelming Christians, maybe we're so aware of how full of flaws and failings we are, yet if these three fruits are present in us, and they will be if you're a Christian this morning, even in the most seemingly fragile way, we ought to be deeply encouraged and thankful to God. Especially when we remember, as Paul goes on to remind the Colossians, of where these three things come from. He reminds them that they have come from God, through the gospel. It's not a result of their own grit and effort and determination. Faith, hope, and love are gifts. They're gospel fruits that grow out of gospel soil. They they grow out of the message of the gospel, the good news that they heard. And Paul also wants them to know that if they have these three things, in whatever measure, they are not lacking any vital thing when compared to other Christians and other churches throughout the world. Because, Because he says, wherever this good news is preached, it bears this same glorious fruit of faith and hope and love. So no church anywhere in the land, no Christian is lacking or second rate where these three fruits are found. And then Paul tells the Colossians what he is praying for them. Uh, and this, this prayer is like that moment when if you've been on a plane sometime in your life, maybe, well, it wouldn't be recently, but it perhaps for a lot of us, but 
as you're sat on the plane, I think this is the best bit of the flight, and you're just setting off down the runway, and then the pilot throws the throttle forward into full, and you, you get pushed back in your seat, and assuming you're not afraid of flying, there's a grin on your face. That, that's, that's what this prayer is like. Paul is now intentionally going to share with them a big, wide, full-throttle kind of prayer. So let no one have the idea that Paul has this kind of minimalistic, uh, small expectations for the Christian life. No, first, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Second, he prays that they would be strengthened with all divine power for all endurance and patience with joy. And third, he prays that they would overflow with thankfulness to God. Because God has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, isn't that the kind of Christian reality we all long to experience? Don't we, if we're Christians here this morning, long for more fullness, more spiritual wisdom, more strength and divine power, more joy and thankfulness in, their li- in our lives? Uh, sign me up for that, please. Where do I have to go to find more of that for my Christian life? Well, here's the thing. Here's the underlying point of Paul's prayer. We don't have to go anywhere. All that he prays for them here is already theirs and ours in Jesus. All that we need is in Jesus Now, that's a big claim. All fullness, all wisdom, all power for us in Jesus. It's a big claim. But then Paul immediately backs up his claim by reminding us of just who Jesus is. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 15. Just this starting phrase, that paragraph. He is the image of the invisible God. Meaning, Jesus, meaning Christ, is the complete and full revelation of God. All of the Father's character and purposes and power are embodied in his Son. So that if you and I truly want to know God, the God of the universe, to know him and enjoy him, we really can in the person of his Son. There's no, there's no secret or hidden knowledge out there. There's no secret hidden knowledge of God to be discovered elsewhere away from Christ. Paul is saying that would be a nonsense. It would be like a, a spiritual wild goose chase for our lives to try and seek something of God away from Jesus. But there's no need to do that either because Christ is the exact image of the invisible God. He is everything we need. Everything we need, and that's Paul's point here. And then to press home his point, Paul lays out the sheer, undeniable supremacy of Christ over all things. And it it really is all things. Let Let me show you how it's all things. First, he explains how Jesus is utterly supreme over all creation. He says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is nothing anywhere that exists outside of Jesus' rule. 
He's the creator and sustainer of it all. So every star, every planet, every adult, every child, every ruler, every angel, every mountain, every raindrop, every speck of dust, it was all created through him and it is all held together moment by moment by him. So all of creation, Jesus is supreme. But not only that, Paul then explains how Jesus is supreme over the new creation as well. He is the head of the body, the church. So through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has begun a whole new creation, a new people who are reconciled to God. He has made peace by the blood of his cross so that, here's why this is so significant for us, so that not only are all of God's purposes for the entire cosmos fulfilled in Christ, but all of God's purposes for us personally, in every facet of our life, home and work and family and friends and church and elsewhere, all of God's purposes are found and fulfilled in Christ too. All that God has done to save us, all that he will do to keep us, all the ways that he plans to grow us, he does through the all-sufficient Christ. All that we could ever need to live the fullest Christian life is found in Jesus, which is why Paul then so willingly devotes his life and his all to making much of Jesus. He devotes his life to, and this is our sort of second heading, second section of Colossians this morning, Paul devotes his life to sharing Christ. Chapter 1, verse 24 through to 2, verse 5. If Christ is all in all, And all that we need is found in him. Paul wants his life and his ministry to be all about sharing Christ with other people. With those who don't know him yet and with those who do know him already as well. Now, none of us here this morning, I can guarantee, are called to be an apostle like Paul was. Only some of us are called perhaps to preach or teach about Jesus publicly in a formal kind of way. But all of us who are Christians are called in one way or another, to make much of Christ in the everyday places that God has put us. And our relationships with children are one such place that, that we have the privilege of doing this. It's a, it's a vitally important place where God has given so many of us this opportunity. Whether we're a parent ourselves or we serve in children's ministry or we simply engage in those conversations Pete was talking about with the children in our church and in our wider families, so grandparents, you're included in this too, all of us, we're included. We can imitate Paul's example. So what is Paul's example? What does he show us? Well, first of all, he reveals the content of his message, and it's it's wonderfully succinct. He says, chapter 1, verse 28, him we proclaim. Him we proclaim, which tells us that Paul doesn't go around with a kind of 12-step plan to being a better Christian or with 101 techniques for becoming more spiritual. He doesn't even simply go around sharing a set of truths. He proclaims Christ, the living, breathing Jesus. He talks about the person and work of Jesus and all that God has accomplished and promised and provided in him. Jesus is the content of Paul's message. Now, we can all talk to our children and our neighbors 
and our colleagues and our friends about a multitude of different things in life that are, that are good and will do them good and encourage them. But there is nothing better that we can ever talk to others about than Jesus. So in light of this, let me encourage, let me encourage especially those who are parents here this morning, whatever your child's age, talk to them often about Jesus. Don't just talk about church, talk about Jesus. Tell them of his love. Tell them of his kindness. Tell them of his sacrifice and tell them of your own great delight and contentment and gratitude in him. Keep directing them. And let's all do this for the children in our lives, in our church. Keep directing them to Jesus himself. Second, Paul explains the method by which he makes Jesus known. Chapter 1, verse 25, by making the word of God fully known. So Paul's not out sharing hunches or theories. He's not sharing secret knowledge. or It's not because he's got a deeply philosophical mind that he can do this. He just shares the word of God. He points to Jesus in all the scriptures. He, he, he opens it on any page, every page, and says, can I, let me show you Jesus and what he's like and what he's done. And so we might ask ourselves, where has God given us opportunities in everyday life to do exactly that? To open God's word and show people Jesus. And thirdly, he tells them his goal in all that he teaches. That they might become mature in Christ. That they might enjoy full assurance. That they might come to a full understanding of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are theirs in Jesus, this is such a glorious goal to live for. It's so glorious that Paul says he pours all of his energy into it. He's willing to endure all manner of struggles and difficulties if only the people he serves, however young, however old. I was going to go, it's not like old people get super tall, is it? But you know what I'm doing. That they might grow deeper in their knowledge of Christ and the riches that are theirs in him. Christ-centered parenting is, is really hard. Christ-centered ministry to other people in all sorts of ways is really hard. But it is worth our all. Because what more could we give to our children or our friends or the strangers we meet on the street than this? What greater gift could we give to anyone than to bring them to know the all-sufficient Christ and to relish the riches that are found in him? It's no wonder then that Paul doesn't want the Colossians as well to get distracted and diverted away from Jesus either. And so in the next section, the third section this morning from chapter 2 verse 6 to the end of the chapter, he charges them to keep holding fast to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Paul doesn't want them to lose sight of Jesus. He, he doesn't want the Colossians to be deceived, to be duped, to be taken captive, to be distracted and led away from all of these riches that are theirs already in him. That would be a tragedy 
be a tragedy in the mind of Paul. It would be a tragedy for the Colossians. But we might ask, what would tempt the Colossians to do that? In light of all that we've just heard, what might possibly tempt them and us to trade Christ for other things or, or to supplement him with other things? And Paul seems to highlight in this section two particular temptations. The temptation of religious tradition and the temptation of worldly pagan spirituality. And I won't say much about these, but just to say the Colossians had grown up in a world that, much like our own, tried to worship all sorts of different gods and deities and philosophies all at once. Our world today is much the same. So popular wisdom out there today would say, Take the best from every kind of faith, every religion, every lifestyle philosophy in order to have the best possible life experience. It's a bit like we're in a a tapas-style restaurant. There's an all-you-can-eat buffet. Our world is one big Zaza Bazaar restaurant of beliefs and ideas and philosophies. And the message given to us, the, the sort of the banner message on the menu is, why settle for one particular cuisine? when you can gorge yourself on elements of all of them. And Paul simply wants them to know and us to know that we're deceived if we think there is positive gain for us in doing that as Christians. And he gives two simple reasons. Firstly, because if we have Christ, we literally have the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells. To know Christ is to know God. And he says we've already been filled in him, meaning that God's mighty power that we might go out there to look for, we're looking for power in our lives. He says, no, God's mighty power has already been demonstrated in our lives such that we've already been raised to new life, our sins all forgiven, our debts fully cancelled and paid. So we don't need religious signs and rituals. We don't need special mystical experiences to truly enjoy God. That is already ours in all of its fullness if we have Jesus. And the second reason he gives for staying rooted and built up in Jesus is that all that we need for Christian growth and maturity is found in him as well. The world, as said already, that we live in today is fuller than ever before of um, promises and plans and techniques to help us grow. YouTube is just full of content. And you know, you, you click one video, don't you, and then another one, and then suddenly your, your whole feed is filling up day by day with videos on this topic, and you think, oh, everybody's, everybody's in this, into this now, and everybody's talking about it. Uh, ways of becoming more productive, more charming, speaking more clearly, losing more weight, looking more toned, becoming a better parent. But though there, uh, this advice might change, change the outward veneer of who we are on the surface... Paul says in chapter 2, verse 23, it's of no value in really getting to our hearts and truly changing us from the inside out. So no secular parenting advice, as an example, is ever going to help me deal with my sinful attitudes towards my children. And I'm sure that's what bothers my children most as well. So what I find on YouTube is not going to help me here in my heart, though it might give me some tips for some externals. But hold fast to Christ, says Paul, the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. Well, then we'll all truly grow and we'll go on growing with a growth that comes direct from God himself. All the fullness of power and wisdom that we need in our lives to grow from the, from the inside out 
is found in staying rooted in Jesus and becoming ever more captivated by him. And so that's Paul's earnest desire for the Colossians. You'll see that if you, as you go away and read through this letter. And it ought to be our eager desire for ourselves and for the people around us too. So finally, what does that look like in practice? How do we apply all of that to our lives? What does a Christ-rooted, Christ-captivated, Christ-filled life look like in the normal, everyday grind of life? And that's exactly what the last big section of Colossians intends to show us. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So this last section I'm calling Living in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1 through to 4, verse 6. Living in Christ. And in it, Paul begins by talking. I'm going I'm to rapidly go through these few things. Begins by talking about our new Christ-centered identity. He reminds the Colossians that they have a new home. They've got a new address, a new identity. They were, I presume, most of them born in Colossae. They've grown up in Colossae. They took on its culture, traditions, and behavior. But he says, Colossae is no longer your true home. You have been raised with Christ, and your life is now hidden with him. He's telling them they have a new passport, a new identity, a new home. And where a person lives and belongs really does affect and shape how they live. We know this, don't we, because we know it even affects how a person dresses. So someone who lives at the North Pole will dress in furs and warm clothes and, uh, or have thermal hat and scarf and gloves. But someone who lives down near the equator will dress completely differently. Uh, almost the opposite, in fact, because their home is in an entirely different place. And so too, if we're Christians, our true home is no longer this world, but the next. Our true home is with Jesus. And the way we now live should reveal that we're no longer around, from around these parts. We belong somewhere else. And then so in, in particular, Paul calls us, chapter 3, verse 5, to put off those things that belong to our old earthly nature, that old earthly citizenship, and to put on the new self that's being renewed in the image of its creator. He calls us to put on Christ-like thinking and Christ-like behavior. Not to earn our new identity. It's not like you get, sort of get it, you have to do this for five years and then you get this new identity given to you. But because we've already been freely given it in Jesus. This whole section is really just a call to Christians to, to be, uh, let me get this right around, to be who you've already become. You have a new identity in Christ, so seek to live it out, is what Paul is saying. And that affects not just how we relate to God, but how we relate to one another as well. And so in chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, Paul calls us to a new Christ-centered community too. In fact, it's quite remarkable how quickly he moves and steers the conversation from just living a Christ-centered life on our own into the area of our relationships together. However diverse and different we might be, we're to keep putting on a Christ-like heart of service and compassion and mercy towards one another. And then he says as well, to fix our minds and hearts together on worshiping him and teaching others more about him from his word, so that ultimately all that we do in our, in our shared life together, in word and deed, that we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he says, and this is where it gets really uh, personal, kind of uh, um, encroaching on our most private space. This should affect not just our church life and our public life, but our home life as well. And so Paul next turns his attention to building Christ-centered homes, which really does drive home this point that Jesus is supreme over everything. Even over our most private space, an Englishman's home is his castle. No, Christ is supreme even in our homes. And so Paul addresses husbands, calling them to love and lead their families, not with harshness, but with Christ-like love and kindness. He calls on wives to support and submit to their husbands' leading. He even takes time to address the children. Even they have a role to play in this glorious vision of creating a Christ-centered home by obeying their parents, submitting to their lead in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then he has a special word for fathers, which I think is perhaps just especially relevant for us today. So I want to draw attention to it. He says, fathers... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I'm sure that some mothers will feel challenged by this too, but I think it's a special temptation for those of us who are fathers. So I speak now to fellow fathers here this morning. God has entrusted us with a great privilege and a weighty responsibility in our homes that includes helping our children to learn the importance of the blessing of obedience, learning the importance of obedience to God. But we can be tempted to misuse that responsibility. Paul says we, we, can, we have the potential to embitter and discourage our children, either by perhaps the way we address them, if we speak to them with harshness rather than with patience and kindness, or maybe by making overly strict and petty and demanding rules. And I I draw attention to this out of my own weakness as a father and my many, many sinful parenting mistakes. But there is grace for us. God is willing and mighty to help us. If only we're willing, we're willing to humble ourselves before him, confess our sins, and keep asking for his help. And oftentimes, this is perhaps, I was going to say, it's the, the yeah, I think it's one of the greatest bits of parenting advice. There, I'm sure there are some other key ones. Oftentimes that involves being quick to say sorry to our wives and children and asking their forgiveness as well. There's no point in us pretending that we are perfect fathers who do it all right. Our wives know very well that's not the case. Our children quickly learn it too. They, maybe they make it through a year or 18 months. I'm not sure of, of thinking you're kind of just amazingly perfect, but... That soon runs out. But if they see us striving to practice tender-hearted Christ-like leadership with honesty and humility when we inevitably get it wrong, then they'll see how good it is to have a a friend and a Lord and a Savior like Jesus. And our ultimate goal as, as a husband and a father will actually be accomplished as much through our failings as our successes if we're humble and honest about where we fall short. That's really what we're striving for in a Christ-centered home. Not being perfect parents, but humble parents. Making much of Jesus at any and every opportunity. Praying that our own lives would be like a window into Jesus' glorious gospel of grace. 
Now, finally, and very briefly, Paul then addresses Christ-centered work. We won't go into the details, but uh, suffice it to say, his instructions here bring divine dignity and purpose to all our daily work, whether it's in the home or in the office or outside somewhere else, as we work heartily in all that we do, offering it all in the service of Jesus. And then he turns our attention to Christ-centered prayer. He says to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. And at the top of the prayer list, after thanksgiving, pray for the message of the gospel to go forth, for Christ to be shared both publicly and privately and in a manner that is always full of grace. And so all of this is Paul's snapshot of what it means to live out our new life in Christ, to what it means to live a Christ-centered life. And, and it is expansive, and it's grand, and it's glorious. But perhaps as we try to take in the full scope of it, we might think to ourselves, could this really be God's plan for me? I'm really not that impressive a Christian. I fail so many times in these things. And that's why my encouragement is, when you, when you go away and read Colossians for yourself, don't skim over Paul's final greetings. We often do at the end of the letter. It just seems kind of trivial. He mentions some people. But in those final greetings, not only, not only have we already been reminded that every, at every turn our sufficiency is not in ourselves but in Christ, but in those final greetings, we're reminded that he wasn't writing to some kind of special, super elite Christian's All that he wrote, he wrote, all that we've just seen, he wrote to real, everyday, messy people like you and me. People who, though we don't deserve it one bit, are loved by Christ, precious to Christ, and already wholly complete in Christ. People who are called, quite simply, to hold fast to Jesus. It's all we're called to do when it comes down to it, to keep walking in him, rooted and built up in him, and abounding in thanksgiving for all that we've received. And that, in a nutshell, is the message of Colossians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, above all else, for Jesus, that in him all your fullness dwells, and that we have been filled in him if we put our trust in him. Not because of any good works we have done, but because you are a God who is full of great mercy and grace and kindness. Lord, please help us to treasure Christ. Please help us to keep walking together, rooted and built up in him. And we ask, Lord, for your help, your power, your strength to make him central to all we do. We pray that you'd help us to grow in his likeness, to become who in your amazing grace you have already remade us in Christ to be. We pray this in the precious name of the all-sufficient Jesus. Amen.